In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, the, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Well, it's uh, the Christmas season. I guess most of you probably know that. I'm curious if most of you gotten done with all of your shopping and that sort of thing. Oh, that's not good. Some of you might not have anything under the tree this Christmas. Well, you know that Christmas is a special time. It's a special time for family. It's also an especially special time for folks who have birthdays around the Christmas season. Uh, In fact, I'm just curious. Do we have any people that have birthdays around Christmas or on Christmas Day? My grandfather did. Yeah, so you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Christmas is uniquely special for you, right? So uh, you know that around the Christmas season, you have some unique challenges and experiences with those kind of birthdays. Uh, My grandfather used to tell me all about them. So uh, maybe you know about the challenge of getting something like a combo gift. You know what a combo gift is? You know, it's one where somebody hands you a gift and it says, uh, Merry Christmas and Happy Birthday, right? Like, uh, I knew I had to get you something for Christmas, and it's also your birthday, so I'm just going to double down here. Now, usually you think it would be twice as nice, but usually it's just, you know, it's just one for two. It's a two-for-one special, right? Or or maybe you've had somebody do a combo gift in another another sort of iteration where they hand you something like a basketball goal, right? Not hand, but they, they give you a basketball goal. It's all wrapped up, and then they hand you another present, and you're like, this is the net, isn't it? Yeah, you give me a basketball goal, and then you wrap the net separately. The net's for my birthday, and the basketball goal's for Christmas. It doesn't work that way. I'm sure you're thinking to yourself, that's not fair. You didn't do that for other people who don't have birthdays on Christmas. Or or maybe you've received a uh, present. Uh, Maybe you've never received a present that's actually wrapped in birthday paper, right? It's always wrapped in Christmas paper. And so you always feel like your birthday is a little bit overshadowed by Christmas. Well... I think that uh, there was actually a a man that was born in the birthday that had a a similar scenario, and that is John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist wasn't born on the same day as Jesus, but his birthday is is always really just anticipatory for a greater baby that was being born, being King Jesus. And we're going to be talking about baby John today, baby John the Baptist. We're back in our Christmas cast series where we're going through each of the characters that surround the nativity scene uh, and how they influence Christmas and what we should learn from them. And and this morning, we're going to be taking a look at baby John the Baptist and his prenatal jive. That's right. Baby uh, John the Baptist is dancing in the womb this morning. He dances in Elizabeth's womb when he is in the presence of Mary's baby Jesus. And so we're going to see this morning, uh, we're going to learn something from baby John. Why is baby John dancing? That's really the thing I want to think about this morning. And and we're going to talk about that. And what we're going to find is, is the Holy Spirit brings about joy in Jesus for believers. The Holy Spirit brings about joy in Jesus for believers. It's our big idea. Now, we're going to see this in two ways. The first is this. We see here that the good news of baby John signals the better news of baby Jesus. 
The good news of baby John signals the better news of baby Jesus. And you can see this in verses 39 to 40. Now, just remember in context, in the verses up to this, right before this, you'll remember that Gabriel has just told Mary that she would give birth to Jesus as a virgin. And that he would be the long-awaited Christ from the line of King David. That he would be both fully God and fully man, born of the Holy Spirit. And right in the middle of that, Gabriel promised Mary a sign. Do you remember? He he said, I'm going to give you a sign to know that this is true. It's this. In in Luke 1, 36-37, your barren cousin Elizabeth, she's going to give birth to a baby and she's already pregnant. So if you go and check it out with Elizabeth, who's tried to have a baby her whole life, never has, now she's having a baby. If she's pregnant, then that's how you'll know that what I'm saying is true. And so Mary believed Gabriel. And in verse 39, notice her immediate response. The Gabriel's, he's gone. Here's what she does. It says in verse 39, turn there with me. Luke 1, 39. Here's what she does. It says, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, what is Mary doing at Zechariah and Elizabeth's house? Well, she's checking the sign that Gabriel promised her. Now, just to be clear, Luke tells us that this couple's pregnancy was special in its own right. We talked about that last week. See, Zechariah and Elizabeth had been barren all of their lives, and they lived a righteous life before God. They were faithful, but no matter how much they prayed, they produced no fruit of the womb. And Gabriel just met the priest Zechariah as he experienced the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to enter into the holy place and offered incense on Israel's sweet altar of prayer that stood before the curtain of the entranceway to the Holy of Holies. He was able to get his once-in-a-lifetime shot at at being that guy. And so he's offering the incense when all of a sudden he has this unique experience. See, Zechariah, this godly priest, is confronted with the last person in the world that he thought he would see in the Holy of Holies. God. He saw God's angel speaking with God's voice to him. And he receives a message from God. It shocked him. And Zechariah, this godly priest, was so fascinating. He had longed for all of his day being in the presence of God, hearing from God, seeing God face to face. And the one thing that he struggled to do is to believe when he got there and showed up that God had actually spoken, right? I mean, wouldn't you think if anybody was qualified to believe that God had spoken to him when God had spoken to him, it would be a priest, an older priest, who was faithful and righteous, and yet he doubted God's word. And so Gabriel struck him dumb until his wife Elizabeth gave birth to John. Why? Why did he do this? Well, how could this priest believe the Messiah was coming if he couldn't even trust that God could give his barren wife a baby? I mean, surely this priest knew that in the Old Testament there were precedents for such things. I mean, if you look through the Old Testament, we find that God had done the same thing with Sarah, Ruth, Hannah, and, and other barren women. But he doubted. Little did he know that baby John signaled the greater miracle of baby Jesus. So don't miss this. Jesus himself, speaking of this baby, baby John, who became a great man, says in Matthew eleven eleven, 
that among those born of a woman, there has been no one greater born than the, John the Baptist. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm looking for someone to like, sort of tell me uh, where I stand, and um, I want like, someone to give me an accurate view of me, I think I trust Jesus even more than I trust myself. And Jesus says, John the Baptist is the greatest human that has ever lived. You ever, you ever thought about that? It's kind of amazing. And yet, Luke agrees and uses the greatness of John the Baptist here only to highlight the greater greatness of Jesus. So in other words, if John the Baptist is the greatest human to ever live, then what does that mean about Jesus? So catch how we see throughout Luke's gospel, in chapter 1 even, how John's greatness really only anticipates the greater greatness of Jesus. We see this in five ways. I could have mentioned more, but for one, we're told that John is great in the eyes of the Lord in verse 15. But Jesus is great, period, in verse 32. No qualifications. He is simply great. Uh, Number two, John is filled with the Spirit in the womb in verse 15. That's pretty unique. But Jesus is conceived of the Spirit's activity upon a virgin in verses 35 to 37. We've never seen anything like that before. Or what about John as a prophet of the Most High in verse 76? It's a big deal. But Jesus, we're told in verse 32, is the Son of the Most High. Uh, You'll notice that John also was born of a miraculous birth like other Old Testament figures. But Jesus, Jesus has a more miraculous, unparalleled birth. And then, of course, fifth, John came to prepare for the coming one in verse 17. But verse 33 tells us that Jesus is the coming one who will reign forever. So all throughout, Luke is saying, look at the greatness of John. John is just preparing the way for someone who is greater that is to come. So the good news of baby John only signals for us the better news of baby Jesus. And when John grows up, he completely understands his place as the greatest human ever born before King Jesus. And here's what John says about Jesus. In Luke 3.16, all grown up now, John says, He who is mightier than I is coming. The one I was preparing you for. And the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. I mean, what a declaration by the greatest human that's ever lived. Now catch this. John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. And he is the one who fulfills Malachi's vision of an Elijah-like prophet who would come and prepare the way for the Messiah. And Jesus says John's greater than the prophet Elijah. And John says... Catch this, Jesus is categorically greater than me. Now here's what that means. Jesus isn't just a prophet. We're not celebrating Christmas because a prophet, a special prophet, maybe even the greatest prophet, came before us and dwelt amongst us. That's not what the story of Christmas is. No, Jesus is much, much more than a prophet. See, a a prophet speaks, thus saith the Lord. But Jesus speaks as the Lord. He has the authority to speak in a unique way that is unlike any prophet who ever preceded him spoke with. That's why you constantly find the Pharisees saying, we have never seen anyone teach with this kind of authority. He's not footnoting someone else for authority. He is claiming himself as deity. He is the God-man. 
God doesn't speak through prophets to us anymore. And here's why. Because we have something better. Now hold on close. This is important. We we aren't looking for prophets. We've had Jesus. In fact, that's why Hebrews 1.1 says this. Listen to this. One of the most majestic texts about Jesus in all of the Bible. Here's what it says. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the very word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having as much superior to angels, having become as much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. How do you get higher than Jesus? As high as the heavens, he's over the angels. You don't get higher than this guy. And here, what human could that verse, could those verses be spoken of? There's no one. And catch this. This is the one person that has this kind of greatness. It's unparalleled. And this is the reason, friends, that we do not follow other prophets. We don't follow the prophet Muhammad of Islam. Uh, we don't need to follow Joseph Smith with the Mormon church or, uh, or the present current prophet and his voice. We are not looking for other prophets who have authority over us. We have something much better than the prophets of old. We have Christ the Son. Son has authority over you and over me. He is our King. And we listen to His voice and His voice alone. Or as Hebrews says, what we find is, is that God's final climactic word is coming and has already come in the person of Jesus Christ. We're not looking for new words. Hebrews says it this way, when Jesus finished His work, He sat down. Now the urban dictionary rendering of He sat down is, is that Jesus took care of business and then He dropped the mic, right? Like, he, there's nothing else to be done. He walks off stage. Like, I have said it for you. You have been saved. Follow me. All you're looking for is me to return. We're not looking for a fresh word from God, brothers and sisters. We're looking for Jesus to come back. And we're not looking for better words. We're looking for our faith to become sight. And that's what Mary was looking for when she ran to Elizabeth. So what did she find? Well, second, we see that Bobby, uh, baby John dances for joy in the womb. Did you see that? Baby John dances for joy in the room. Turn with me again to Luke 1, verses 41 to 45, and see what happens when, when Mary gets there. Here's what it says. It says, And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So check this out. When a pregnant Mary approaches a pregnant Elizabeth. John the Baptist breaks out into the whip nene in utero. I mean, he is 
Okay, some of y'all, okay, um, 80s, 80s. The MC Hammer? The Tango? Anybody? He's dancing and leaping in the womb. Like he's, he's celebrating, right, over what's going on. He literally starts leaping and dancing in Elizabeth's womb, signaling that Mary carried Christ and John prepared the way for him. Why did John the Baptist break down into this prenatal breakdance? Like, what's going on with him? Well, I think we see a number of things in this text that tell us about the greatness of Jesus that got baby John moving, all right? Uh, We see about five things. I mean, for one, notice Elizabeth's response signals the fulfillment of Joel 2. I mean, this fulfillment is just laced with Old Testament prophecy that they had been longing to see fulfilled. And the first one is, I think Elizabeth's response signals the fulfillment of Joel 2. See, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And and in that Holy Spirit-inspired moment, she exclaims with a loud cry. That's language that signals prophecy. And and she is about to prophesy, and she prophesies. Now, Elizabeth, interestingly, this woman that prophesies is an an older woman who is going to prophesy. And what's fascinating is you'll find that after these verses, Mary will have her Magnificat where she prophesies. And so you have an older woman and a a younger woman prophesying. And you'll remember that after that, Zechariah is going to prophesy, an older man, a priest. And then we'll find Anna and Simeon, poor older individuals. And as you go through Luke and Acts, you'll find that there are all these uh, different folks from different um, uh, stages in life and, and socioeconomic places prophesying. And I believe Luke is highlighting for us something that is uniquely breaking out into history. It is that Joel 2 is being fulfilled. See, Joel 2 forecasted that on the end times, the day of the Lord, there would be a pervasive pouring out of the Spirit. It would pour out, He would pour out on the young and the old, on men and women, on the rich and the poor, and that would signal that the end times had come. And Joel says that the end times, that last day, what it means is, is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord in that day shall be saved. And so that's the reason, I believe, at least one, a good reason to start dancing. But salvation, it it, it has come. There's another reason I think that he dances. Second, Elizabeth calls Mary and the fruit of her womb blessed. Did you catch that? Mary, you and the fruit of your womb are blessed. Now, a woman's greatness in this culture was often signified or or quantified by the greatness of her children. And her son is categorically greater than the greatest human that's ever lived. That's that's pretty much a a reason to be excited. This birth means that the king has arrived. Third, Elizabeth's prophecy also sees Jesus as a fulfillment of God's Genesis 12 promises to Abraham, right? Uh, You'll remember that God promised Abraham that he would bless him and that he would bless all nations through him and that that would come through a chosen seed or son that would be given to him and through that seed or that son, all nations would be blessed. And here we find that Mary is blessed because this fruit of her womb is blessed. Uh, We see life breaking out, a new creation beginning where God is fulfilling those old promises. You'll remember that 
God miraculously gave Abraham a child through his barren wife, Sarah, when she was 90 years old. And Isaac was a partial fulfillment of that promise to Abraham, but Isaac really only pointed to a greater son that would come later. Do you see it? Many sons and babies have pointed towards the greater son, Jesus, that was to come. It's not just John. John understands that he's really just part of a long line of people who have a better Christmas because Jesus is here. And so here we find that Jesus is the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of what Abraham looked forward to. Jesus is the greater son, and all nations will be blessed through him. And that's what I believe is on Mary's mind in verse 55 later when she'll break out and, and just proclaiming that God spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. You see, and her hope is that Abraham is still, those promises, they haven't gone by the wayside, even though she's stuck in Nazareth, God is still at work and he will fulfill every promise. Fourth, notice that Elizabeth calls baby Jesus Lord. Lord. Now, I know that some people treat their babies um, like they are their gods, but I think this is saying more than that. See, Luke, he uses Lord in his gospel over 40 times, around 40 times. And when he does, it's interesting, often it looks like he's talking about Yahweh, God. But he also uses it to describe Jesus. And see, Jesus here, we see Elizabeth calling him Lord. I believe this sounds a lot like Psalm 110. Where King David, the greatest king that Israel has ever known, looks for a son who will come after him who will be uncategorically greater. See, the Lord Yahweh tells David's Lord in that verse to sit at his right hand. And he tells them that he will put all enemies under his feet and that he will establish peace for his people. Now you just think about this. In that culture... If a son comes after a dad, the son is always lesser than the one who comes afterwards. And so David is saying, there's something different that's going to be happening here. This son that is coming is not going to be lesser than me. He's going to be greater than me. And the Lord himself who sits enthroned in heaven is going to call him Lord. And he is going to have a kind of authority. So this guy is going to be Lord over David too. This is a unique kind of guy. And I believe that here, when we find in this text, Elizabeth calling this child Lord, she is saying, I see that this is the one that David spoke of. The Messiah has come. He is the one who we are promised will get rid of all of our enemies external. But also we're told that that king is going to be different and that he's also a priest after the order of Melchizedek in Psalm 110. Now, what that means is, is not only is he bringing us peace with our external enemies, but because he is a priest, he is one who is going to bring us peace with God, bringing us near to God. I don't know about you, but if you've got a king like that, I think that's a reason to celebrate and dance a little bit, right? That's exactly the thing that we find John doing. See, Elizabeth sees what David looked for in Mary. And fifth, another reason he dances, I think, is because Luke repeats that John got jiggy with it in the womb twice. Did you notice that? I mean, just in case you missed that John's dancing in the womb, he's dancing in the beginning and the end. Don't miss it. Why? Why do both verses 41 and 44 tell us that John leaped for joy at the sound of Mary? Well, I think for all of the reasons cited before, but also if you look in the Bible, there's a lot of dancing. You find David dancing, right? 
when you go to 2 Samuel 6, he danced before the Lord in such a way that embarrassed his wife as the ark entered into the city of God. He celebrated God's arrival. You see it? The ark represented the place where God was. And so as God enters God's city in the city of David, and as that is dropped down, he celebrates and dances. He says, God's here. You get it? Yeah, that's awesome. And so he's excited about it. Well, I think this also is a foreshadowing of the promise that we have in Malachi 4. See, Malachi 4 says that God uh, is where God says the people of God who fear him will leap like calves in the stalls on the day of the Lord when the Lord shows up. You see it? When the, when the Lord shows up, uh, the people of God who fear Him and who put their confidence in Him and who put their faith in Him, they are going to be dancing like excited baby cows because God has shown up in their presence. So why do you think John's so happy? I think John leaps in the womb testifying to Jesus being Lord. He is saying God has shown up. He is saying our Savior, our Messiah, the one that we have been waiting for has come and He has dropped down and He is in our presence and there is no better reason in heaven and earth to dance than that. See, John is excited. Commentator Robert Stein, speaking of this joy, says this joy was not just a personal feeling. Like he was just happy, right? I mean, a happy baby bump. That's not what's going on. But this is the eschatological joy brought by the arrival of the messianic age. This baby signals something grand and new is happening in history. Something that we've never seen before. God himself has taken on human flesh to come and die for us and save us. See, the joy of Christmas, don't miss this. It is as much about the second advent as the first advent. Now, advent just means coming. And so Christmas is much about the second coming, the one that we're looking forward to, is the first coming, the one that we're looking back at. And we live in between those two advents. It's interadvental living, right? And, and the first coming signaled the beginning of the end. So what we need to be thinking about, I believe as Christians, is John believes that Jesus ought to signal joy for the people of God. That we ought to be a joyful people. Uh, and that's John's purpose. The same prophet who went and said, my whole ministry is about telling people to repent and believe, said my whole ministry is about bringing joy to the people of God. And so, how do we fight for Christmas joy? And so many of us get so stressed out in the Christmas season. But really, I think it should be a launching pad for joy all year long, along with Easter. We should be getting excited about what God has done and how He has acted miraculously amongst us. So how can we fight for Christmas joy all year round? Because I do believe it's a fight. Well, if you want to dance like John, here's how to get inspired. Because I don't think that all of us are necessarily feeling like dancing this morning. Right? Some of you, like, maybe you feel like it, but you know you shouldn't because you'd embarrass yourself or your family. But we want to be excited about dancing for the Lord. We want to be moved by His Word, right? We want to be joyful. I think all of us know we want to be joyful. Some of us are just thinking to ourselves, I've forgotten that I'm supposed to be. I, I don't know exactly how I ought to respond to joy. In fact, even the fact that you just said joy makes me kind of discouraged and sad because I'm not. And then I was reminded of it. And then I got sadder than when I came in. 
But we need to be reminded that joy is something that we are called to and that we're promised and that we are empowered to be. And so let's think this morning about joy. There are some ways that we're going to have to be uh, repentant this morning, including me. You know, I'm preaching this message and God always gives us gifts. And it just so happened that the morning that I'm supposed to be preaching this message on joy is a morning where I have been trying to, to like work on my house and fix things. And I'm not good at that. That frustrates me. I have good friends who help me, but I get really frustrated about my ineptitudes. So that's one reason for me not to be joyful. All kinds of reasons. I just happen to have been sick for the past week and a half. And I'm high on medication right now, so I'm not sure I know all of what I'm saying. But, but a great reason not necessarily to be joyful, right? And all kinds of reasons this morning not to be as joyful as I ought to be. And I'm sure you have many others. You know, we had Christmas last night, uh, or yesterday, uh, because we're going out of town and we're not going to be here to be around our own tree. Another reason I could be discouraged. We had a great time, didn't we, Ben? But reasons to be sad because things aren't going the way that we would want to. And maybe you have all kinds of reasons this morning that you're not joyful. Well, why don't we together just look at God's Word and just consider uh, a few application points about how the Holy Spirit really ought to and wants to and does bring about joy in Jesus for believers, even now. And see, the Holy Spirit wants you to be joyful. That's good news. He's given us plenty of reason to be joyful, and He's given us plenty of hope, and He's given us His Spirit Himself to make us joyful. And so how should we be thinking about this morning? i got just some application points for us to close with. Uh, first, remember that biblical joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So this morning, let me just encourage you. If you're not a Christian, uh, one, uh, we want you to know that uh, being mean and curmudgingly, it's not actually a, a Christian characteristic. Uh, now, the Christians you might know may have been that way to you, um, but they're still being sanctified by God because we know we're not perfect. And uh, we know also that God tells us that we're called to be a joyful people. Uh, we also want you to know that if you're not joyful, uh, it makes sense because we are not joyful less to our, left to ourselves. We need God. We need His Spirit for us to be joyful as we're supposed to be. So this morning, let me just encourage you, if you're not a Christian and you want to know more about this joy, it is available to all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ who trust in the Jesus who came to live for you and die for you and was raised from the dead to tell you that he wants you to have the joy that you want so badly, but it is only to be found in him. So don't leave this morning without talking to me or another believer. We'd love to talk to you about how you can get in on this deal. We think it's available to you in Christ. But for us who are Christians, I want you to know that biblical joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about joy in the Bible, it's not less than what we think of as happiness. When we're talking about biblical joy, maybe that's what you have in your mind. Like, man, I'm just really, life stinks, but joyful always, right? Don't have to be happy, I need to be joyful. They're different. I don't know how, but I think it at least means I don't have to smile anymore. See, we're going to uh, visit family, as I said before, for Christmas. And we sort of saw how this is true, that that really biblical joy is much more than fleeting happiness, uh, in that we went ahead and celebrated Christmas yesterday, and I got Johnny a drone. He's been wanting a drone for a really long time. You know one of those little flying sort of remote control car thingies? And so I uh, went out and got him a, a drone, and um, my dad, he, he got one a few years ago from his sisters, and he loved it, and his first like maiden voyage, he flew it into a really high tree, and I said, John, whatever you do, don't you know go in the backyard and fly it. Let's go to a park, because... 
you'll lose it. And he was so excited, I don't think he even heard me. And so 30 minutes later, uh, Johnny, who had this massive smile on his face as he opened it up. I mean, I was just eating it up, you know, just big smile. I'm like, I, I did that. This is awesome. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking, this is going to be great. He's going to have so much fun over the vacation with this thing. And, um, and, and, and he immediately, uh, you know, sort of disappears. 30 minutes later, he comes into me as I'm working in the house, right? And he says, uh, hey, Dad, we need to go to the neighbors. Like, why do we need to go to the neighbors? Like, we don't want to bug them. Uh, we just, we're kind of having our Christmas. This is family time. That's why I'm doing a work project and ignoring you. So why do we need to go next door? And he said, well, we need to go next door because um, my drone's in a tree in the neighbor's yard. And I said, what? He said, yeah, first one, it took off and shot straight into a tree. And so we need to go get it. So we get a ladder and a pole. I said, wait a minute, you, you, went, you did what I said not to do. Said, Sorry, Dad, I just couldn't help it. It's, just, it's in the tree, though. We got to go get it. So in that moment, I'm looking at it, and I'm going, it's so high in the tree, John, I don't think we're going to be able to get that guy. And you could just see the disappointment in John's face. Now just think about this. In 30 minutes, he went from being so happy that his grill, like every tooth was showing, to having this look like, I think I'm going to cry. Just that quick, his happiness was just robbed from him. Now, fortunately, we did get the, the drone back, so not to leave you sad. I want you to be joyful. But, but in that moment, it was just a great illustration of how quickly our pleasures, our happiness can fly away from us, right? In a moment, we're just, everything's great. And then one little thing happens and like the happiness is gone. Well, let me tell you, the kind of Holy Spirit driven, inspired joy that is spoken of in the Bible, this kind of joy that we see baby John the Baptist pointing forward to is not a shallow, superficial, momentary, fleeting kind of happiness. It's different than that. It's more than that. See, that's a shallow kind of joy, right? But the joy that drives John the Baptist to dance is deeper. It is a Galatians 5.22 kind of fruit of the Spirit. That's what joy is. That's what Paul says. He says, joy that we're speaking of in the Bible is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. That means that if you want it, you have to have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you can't have the kind of joy that we're talking about. Now here's the problem. If you go into your Bible and you're, sing, you're looking at this joy and you're going to yourself, man, it says I'm supposed to be joyful in all things. I'm really mostly sad in all things. And I want this kind of joy. It's not available if you're not in the Spirit, if you have not made Christ your Lord. But if Christ is your Lord and you have His Spirit, that's available to you today. That kind of Spirit-inspired joy is for you. And God wants you to have that joy. That's why the Holy Spirit bears that fruit within His people. See, joy flows from God to us and lifts us towards joy in God. You see it? It kind of flows in and lifts up. That's what the the joy of the Lord does. It's not an earthly kind of joy that comes up from things that we see here. It's a kind of joy that comes down. And we have all of these little joys that bring us happiness in this life really are just beams that point towards the source of that joy, the fountain of that joy, who is God Himself. And so sometimes we get sad at Christmas because we really realize we realize that we've been settling for the shallower joys of this world instead of following those little beams of joy back up to its source, which is God. So don't settle for a shot glass of joy when the ocean of God's love and joy is available to us. And that means we need to pursue that joy that we see here in spiritual ways. Not just like a checklist kind of way, but we do need some practical spiritual ways that we pursue this kind of joy. 
But one is, we, we know clearly that, second, Christ must become greater, right? I mean, that is one reality that shaped John the Baptist's life, message, and purpose. God sent him to be all about preparing the way for Christ. So one of the greatest diminishers of joy in our lives is Christ's significance diminishing in our hearts. Do you get that? One of the greatest diminishers of joy in our lives is Christ's significance diminishing in our hearts. So for the Christian, there is a direct correspondence between the diminishing of Christ's greatness and the diminishing of our joy. As Christ shrinks in our hearts, so too does our joy shrink. You might be given a little bit of a dose of joy to get you by, but the end is despair. In John 3, we see this played out in John the Baptist's life as he's all grown up now. Uh, John, his disciples, because John the Baptist had disciples too, uh, they started getting a little competitive over the fact that some of John's disciples were leaving to follow Jesus. They said, John, you know, they're good disciples. They said, this isn't good. Look, look they're, they're not following you anymore. They're following him, that guy you baptized. Maybe you should have done that so publicly. And Jesus, right here, we see that John understood the greatness of Jesus. And he tells them, you don't understand. This is the way it's supposed to be. They're supposed to leave me and go to Jesus. That's what it is to make disciples, to send them to Christ. And he says to his disciples, John does, he must increase, but I must decrease. And I think he meant that at large, but I also think he meant that individually to each of those disciples. You need to make that man greater in your heart, and I must become less. That's really the way that we fight joy, is that fight for joy, is that Jesus becomes greater and that we become lesser. So protect your sense Protect yourselves against the small view of Jesus. See, Jesus shrinking in your heart shrinks your soul and suffocates your joy. The smaller that Jesus becomes, it will suffocate your joy. The more that your life becomes you and you increase, the more that you say, my number one objective is looking out for me and pursuing joy in my ways and I don't care what God says, the bigger that you become and the smaller that Jesus looks and the way that you see Him, it will shrink your soul, and it will suffocate your joy. And all along the way, you'll be saying, why has God done this to me? See, that means that we need to pursue joy in Jesus. Now, how do we make Christ greater and seek joy in Christ, magnifying ways? How do we do that, those two things? The seeking it spiritually in the Holy Spirit and also making Christ greater. Well, let me just uh, leave you with a, a few quick ways. First, Approach God's Word spiritually. Approach God's Word spiritually. See, I think some of us uh, approach preaching and our personal time with God a lot like we sort of approach taking our car in for an oil change, right? Like, you kind of wait as long as you can before the car breaks down. And and you kind of hope that, like, things don't get too broken before you get it there. And then when you take it into the shop and you're waiting on it, you're hoping it just gets over with as quick as possible. That's not at all the way that we ought to be viewing God's Word. And we ought to come as hungry beggars who have eaten before and are looking to eat again. We know that we cannot be sustained or satisfied with anything else. That means we need to read God's Word and pray that God's Word would read us. As we're looking to God's Word and gazing at it, We want that word to come in to speak to us 
and to challenge us and to shape us and to change us. And if we're not approaching God's word in that way, we're not approaching God's word in the way that God's word intends. See, there is no way, there is no category anywhere in all of the Bible or in all of creation that God ever expects for his word to go out and to remain void. He he expects that when he speaks for his people to listen to him. So, what does that mean? It means that we shouldn't ever casually step up to God's word and not believe that we do need to be shaped by it in ways that direct us towards our need for Jesus, right? Like, fundamentally, when we go to God's word, we are not going to see how good we are. Now, you will be encouraged by evidences of grace that you see in your lives and the lives of others. But fundamentally, when we are going to God's word, we know that we need to hear something from God's word that we didn't know yet. That we want to see something that we have not seen before. And what that's going to mean is something's going to need to change. Of course, that assumes that we're not all perfect, right? That assumes that, that we really do all need change in our lives. See, when I read my Bible, I, I feel two things. Two really good things. I feel hopeless and I feel hopeful, right? I feel hopeless in my own efforts. I feel hopeless in my own righteousness. I feel hopeless in my own gifting. I feel hopeless. I see that whenever I see God, I am much smaller, right? And I think, what am I going to do? And then I remember, oh yeah, Jesus. I need to run to Jesus again. And that is where God begins to do sanctifying work as we look at Christ's obedience and Christ's commands and His Word. And we listen afresh because the Word drives us to have open ears through the power of His Spirit. And that, my friends, is where we find the hope that brings incredible eschatological joy, right? The joy that Christ is coming back not just to fix me incrementally, but finally and fully. That's why we need God's Word. So are you exposing yourself to God's Word in those ways? Are you rested when you come to listen to God's Word preached or taught? Are you rested? Are you, are you really preparing your mind to be engaged with God's Word when you go to hear it preached or when you are spending time in your prayer time in your closet? Are you taking notes? Are you writing things down? Thinking about them? Privately, are you praying and asking God's Word to read you as you read it, assuming that you need help that only Jesus can give? Or are you just, you know, taking the sort of oil checkup approach? There's another way that we can make sure that we're pursuing this in Christ-centered spiritual ways. Not only approach God's Word spiritually, but joy, remember, is a commanded fruit. Joy is a commanded fruit. Maybe it's helpful just to be reminded that joy is a spiritual fruit, but it's also a commanded fruit. So from a prison cell in, uh, in Philippians 4.4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Now, isn't that just one of those that you want to say like, well, I don't think that's authoritative. Like all the time. That was contextual, right? So maybe if I'm only in a prison cell and an apostle like Paul, am I supposed to rejoice all the time, right? That'd be easy to get by on that one. <clears throat> See, this doesn't mean, friends, that we don't weep with those who weep. Or we don't even weep over the brokenness of this world that invades our lives. That's not what this is saying. That we're not allowed tears. That we're not, you know, some of the best things that we can do with those who are hurting is cry with them, love them, hold them, be there with them. But we also have the anecdote to the sorrows of this world, don't we? It's the hope of the gospel that we rejoice in. 
And so we might not understand the page or the chapter of our lives that we find ourselves on today. But we know how our story ends. And it's very good. So don't miss this. God has created you to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. And God is not most happy with us when we were saddest with Him. When we have joy amidst the troubles of this life, I believe it evidences the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so we need to know that we are commanded to be joyful, and that's a real command. And it's something that we cannot do in and of ourselves. It's something that we can only do with the help of the Holy Spirit and because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. But third, we need to pray for joy because it's spiritual fruit. We need to pray for joy because it's spiritual fruit. So if your life feels sorrowful, ask God for more of the spiritual fruit of joy. Pray that God would raise your gaze from the circumstances of this world to your status in Christ. It's a completely different picture. And the real and tangible despairs of this life, getting diagnosed with fibromyalgia or having a dying parent or losing a job, they, I know, require an otherworldly joy that only God can provide for us to be obedient. So let's ask God, from whom every blessing flows, in faith, knowing that He really can bring us joy, even whatever the dark pit is that you find yourself. Fourth, kill sin because it kill, it's a killjoy. Kill sin because it's a killjoy. Now listen close. I, I believe one of the biggest and strongest public relations moves that Satan has made is arguing uh, one of about five lies. Now there are more I could come up with. These are five, I think, that are relevant to this. These are the lies that Satan tells you. And I just want you to think about these. Um, these are critical. They're all lies. One is, so think about the opposite of this. One is that God withholds good from me. God withholds good from me. That is a lie. Every good comes from God. You don't get God good from anywhere else. God is altogether good. In fact, he gives us more and better things than what we deserve. Second, God is happy when I am sad for him. Right? Like, God tells me to do this stuff I don't like doing because it makes him happy to see me sad. No, the reason that we don't like doing the things that he created us to do is because we are so broken we don't even realize it. And the things that we are doing are horrible for us. The problem isn't that God is broken, it's that we are. Why don't we get happy about the things we ought to? Or we believe that sin can make me happy. Satan says sin can make you happy. You know, and, and it can, maybe for an instant. But it always intends to take more than it gives. Or how about this? Sin can make me happier than righteousness, right? Which another part of that is, Satan has good that God doesn't have, and Satan's good is better than God's good. Completely alive from the pit of hell. And sin is free, and it doesn't come at a cost. You know, sin, we're told all through Scripture that it'll cost you everything. It takes people's families. It takes... It takes their bank accounts, it takes their health, it takes all kinds of things. It takes your relationship with God, it makes you an enemy of God. If sin's a big deal, it always comes at a cost, and it always costs more than what you get. See, those are the bitter lies of a being, being Satan, who can't get back to heaven and just wants to see the whole world burn. And the reality is that sin is an enemy of joy. Holiness and happiness go together in the same way that sin and sadness do. Those are the couples Holiness, happiness. Sin, sadness. And we find that Satan mixes it all up. See, this world fights for sin's joy and doesn't realize that fighting for the joy of this world and sin is the surest and fastest way to fight for misery. And finally, we need to fight for joy together. You know, we, 
this joy that we need? Like, we need really a body of people who have diverse gifts and personalities to help us be joyful. Uh, You know, I have uh, all kinds of people that I'm very grateful for that make me very uncomfortable that I keep around me. Um, One type of person that I love to have around me are like happy people. I don't need all happy people, but I do like happy people. And, And people that really are trusting and just naturally are joyful about what God has done. Why? Because it constantly reminds me of how deficient I am. And it also causes me to repent and to seek more joy from God, right? And brothers and sisters, you you need that too. And it's not just personality and temperament differences. You have people in different times of life in this local body, the church. People who are going through good times, who can encourage you when you're going through difficult times, people who can weep with you. Or maybe you're the person that needs to be weeped with. Or maybe you're in a time right now that, that it's hard for you to understand the sufferings of someone else and all you can do is weep with them best you can and encourage them. It's a community affair that we need this joy to to help one another, to encourage one another. That's why I think it's so important that we think about, as Christians, the way that we talk to other Christians. Or are we thinking as we're working together and as we're trying to serve Christ about how my interactions with others are, are actually encouraging their joy and obedience to God? Are we helping them in that? When we see sad Christians, are we seeking to, to help encourage them and lift them up? Uh, when we are working together, are we being careful about our words because we don't want to in any way take away or inhibit their joy because that is good for them and that's good for God and that's what we've been made for. Hey friends, that's something that should be always on our hearts and minds. Are we a place of joy? Serious about theology, serious about God, serious about sin, and serious about joy in God. See, all those things, they're not mutually exclusive. They go together. So this morning, as we go before God in prayer, let's ask that God would make us a more joyful people, knowing that we know the source. We know the only place to go for this kind of joy, and it's in God himself. Let's pray.